0: fuzzy logic we're looking at flying snakes and social lizards gonna get emoticons on the brain talk about the origin of blue eyes and also shivering to get skinny all that and more coming up in your science on a sunday right here on fuzzy logic Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with me this morning as uh, we delve into the world of science once more right here on 98.3 FM X Community Radio. We've got a fantastic show lined up for you, and... Uh So much, so much ready to happen. Uh, As I said, we've got some research on some snakes and lizards. We're going to look at emoticons on the brain, which I posted a status about on our Facebook page, so hopefully you read that one. Although I must admit, I typed in punctuation on the Facebook page and then Facebook converted it to nice little smileys, which kind of defeats the point of the research, but we'll get to that later on. For now... Uh, we better get to this day in science today, of course, being Sunday the 9th of February. What happened on this day in science? Well, back in 1775, a gentleman called Farkas Boyai was born... He's a Hungarian mathematician, poet and dramatist. I like that combination of uh, ideas. A mathematician and a poet uh, just work so well together. And he spent a lifetime trying to prove Euclid's fifth postulate that parallel lines do not meet. Now, to be honest, I would have thought that was pretty obvious that parallel lines don't meet. But mathematicians, they like to prove things even if they are obvious. And uh, Bolliard decided he wanted to prove this um and uh, worked for his whole life on it. He also corresponded with uh, Carl Gauss, uh, who, of course, ha- did a lot to mathematics as well. He was a lifelong friend, uh, and he taught mathematics at uh, and physics and chemistry at a, a university whose name I'm going to struggle to say, Maros Varascheli. Let's go with that, um, something like that. But, look, I think that the most interesting thing is that uh, clearly... He thought spending his life trying to prove that parallel lines are real uh, wasn't that useful because he wrote to his son uh, in a letter and uh, when his son was thinking about studying mathematics and the parallel, parallel axiom in the same way, he wrote to him and said, "'For God's sake, please give it up. Fear it no less than the sensual passion because it too may take up all your time and deprive you of your health, peace of mind and happiness in life.'" So, clearly, uh, he was a bit frustrated with this whole parallel line postulate. So, there we are. If you're thinking about studying that in your life, uh, Bolliei says no. Also on this day in 1854 is the birth of Alleta Henriette Jacobs, uh, a female Dutch physician who pioneered family planning with the world's first birth control clinic. Um, she was actually the first woman to attend university in the Netherlands, where she studied medicine, and became the country's first female doctor. Uh, she took over her father's medical practice in Amsterdam, and uh, soon uh, limited her practice to only women and children, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, In 1881, uh, Jacobs undertook the first systematic study of contraception. Uh, Many of her patients were actually worn down from too many pregnancies. And in 1882, she began prescribing diaphragms as birth control, effectively opening the first birth control clinic in the world. She also taught hygiene and childcare and uh, campaigned... Uh, strongly on women's health and safety issues leading to new laws so a pretty awesome person there that's Aletta jacobs in the netherlands uh, also on this day in 1902 dr eugene louis doyen of paris uh, performed a successful operation of on siamese twins from the barnum and bailey circus although unfortunately one died by the next year now, the reason I quite like Dr Doyen because he was among the first to actually document medical surgeries, and he did this on film way back in 1902. Uh, previous to this surgery, he'd actually made a five-minute movie back in 1898, showing the separation of Siamese twins Radica and Dottica, who were originally brought to Paris as freaks. So there you go. Very early film there, um, doing some good. Uh, And finally on this day, back in 1996, only a little more than a year after they created Element 111, a team of German scientists led by Peter Armbruster at the Gesellschaft für Schweriaforschung facility in Darmstadt, Germany. Now, I speak German, so I should be able to translate that for you. The Centre for Heavy Iron, um, I'm going to go heavy iron creation, heavy iron manufacturing, like iron as in I-O-N, not uh, iron as in I-R-O-N, because that's completely different. We're talking about irons, chemical ions here. Uh, at this uh, centre, that claim to have created the an atom of element 112, element 112, which is rather a large atom when you think about it, uh, because most of the atoms on this earth are, uh, now I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but you know, we're carbon-based life forms, and carbon is an atom with uh, 12 protons in there, um, and no, I take that back. I've got that completely wrong. Carbon has a, an atomic mass of 12, which has six protons and six neutrons in there, which is uh, a reasonably stable nucleus. But when we look at element one twelve, that's massive, uh, relatively speaking. And uh, so it's actually not a very stable element. Um, this element has 112 protons in the nucleus and 166 neutrons, giving it a mass number of 277. So it's that that's at least 20 times bigger than the uh, the carbon that I was talking about before. Um, you know, metals have, have larger nuclei as well, but carbon is a, a pretty good standard. Um, so initially as a new element, it was named Un-Un-Biam, uh with the symbol UUB, uh, according to the internationally adopted system for naming new elements. But later uh, it was given the name of Copernicum uh, after the scientist Copernicus Um interestingly this was discovered in 1996 but it wasn't until 2008 that the name was actually adopted uh which takes that's over 12 years to adopt a name which is interesting how long it took uh interestingly um When uh, the atoms were fused together to make element 112, the new nucleus only lasted a fraction of a thousandth of a second before decaying uh, and emitted an alpha particle to become the nucleus of element 110, which is Darmstadtium, uh, named after the location where all these heavy elements were created. What use these elements are, I'm not really sure, to be honest, (laughs) but um, as with most science, there's a reason behind it and uh, they'll keep creating these heavy elements, even if they only stick around just a little while. So that's what's been happening on this day in science. The 9th of February we're talking about right there. But let's get into some more recent science news and let's look at some research that's been uh, happening recently. And uh, first of all, we're going to go to some research out of the United States at Virginia Tech and... uh I'm not talking about snakes on a plane here. I'm talking about snakes flying without a plane, which is kind of scary, um, especially if you're afraid of snakes. The last thing you want to think about is a snake flying through the air at you, um, but that's exactly what these snakes can do. Uh, we're talking about the paradise tree snake here, which is one of the world's five species of flying snakes, Um And to be technically precise, they're gliders, not actual flyers like birds and bats that can achieve powered flight and launch off from the ground. These snakes glide uh, in a tree. Um, And uh, when you think about it, it kind of makes sense uh, that the snake takes the air from trees uh, because the gliding ability allows the snake to escape from trouble uh, from one place to the next reasonably efficiently and... uh, you know you don't have to slither down the tree to get away and then across the forest floor where predators might be can be kind of dangerous down there this snake can just jump from branch to branch and it can glide about 30 meters which is a pretty long way to just glide through the air um if you've ever seen it glide through it's kind of amazing because if you imagine a snake slithering on the ground it's doing exactly the same sort of movement except through the air which is just crazy um and the scientists studying this uh at um, At Virginia Tech, uh, they're biomechanicists and they're uh, looking at how well it can glide and why it glides so well, uh, this species of paradise tree snake. And uh, what they found is that this snake does two things as it gets in the air. It, first of all, splays its ribs out in order to flatten its profile from a round snake into a more triangular form. And it also undulates through while airborne just like i said like kind of swimming through the air so it's these two things that help us help it fly through the air now the researchers at virginia tech actually replicated a plastic model of the snake uh in the shape that the snake assumes while it's flying through the air and tested it to evaluate its aerodynamic qualities they placed the snake model in a water tunnel and used a laser to track flow patterns of the water around their model stake and uh what they were expecting was that uh, the um, the flow patterns around the snake wouldn't look very good because you know a snake's not really a classically airplane type streamlined object. Uh, but what we what they actually got were some uh, really surprising uh, aerodynamic characteristics. In fact, much better than they anticipated. Um, so it's quite interesting uh, what they can what they found with this and, and what might be done with this research. um, The snake's just one of numerous animals around the world that can glide through the air, and other animals are gliders, flying squirrels, uh, and some lizards also glide as well, including the draco lizard and geckos, as well as gliding frogs and gliding wingless ants, and of course flying fish as well, and even gliding squid. Uh, So scientists are really keen to unlock the secrets of flying snakes, um, especially considering that a snake shape would seem to be bad for aerodynamics. And interestingly, this research was funded in part by the Pentagon's Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency. So they're looking at the science there behind what makes snakes such good gliders, and uh, who knows where that might take us, whether we have snake-like creatures flying through the air, snake-like planes flying through the air soon. I doubt it, uh, but it'd be interesting to see. I actually saw a snake swimming recently, which was really interesting. And again, it swims exactly the way it crawls along the ground. And it was kind of amazing to watch. Uh, I was on a houseboat on the River Murray, and this red-bellied black snake starts just swimming towards us through the river. And uh, I couldn't believe it. I was slightly worried at first, to be honest. But um, it swam away eventually. (laughs) But, yeah, it looks exactly like it does on the ground. So these snakes, they've got moving down pretty efficiently, considering they move without legs at all. Anyway, let's move on from snakes to lizards now and uh, looking at the debate of nature versus nurture and how uh, social interactions can actually change um, the way that animals behave. Uh, You know, most of you guys would know that to rear a baby on its own would have devastating consequences for its development. Uh, And until very recently, scientists thought that it was only the social species of animals, such as birds and mammals, uh, that were disadvantaged if uh, the babies were reared in isolation. And it's been assumed that uh, reptiles, uh, as lower animals, uh, are non-social, so their behaviour is determined by their genes and not by their interactions with the same species. Uh but one of the first studies on young reptiles reared without contact with their siblings was conducted recently uh at the university of sydney's school of biological sciences and what they found was pretty surprising and they reckon that maybe lizards are shaped by social interactions as well um what they found was that uh th- they were studying a set of chameleons and uh, these chameleons catch insects using a ballistic rapid-fire tongue movement and dramatic colour changes uh, to signal dominance. And they found that the lizards that were raised in isolation were more submissive were slower at attacking certain food and displayed darker and duller colours than those raised with their siblings. So they used uh, young veiled chameleons, which are lizards that are native to Yemen and Saudi Arabia and also popular as pets and in zoos, um... And what normally happens with these lizards is that their mum actually leaves them after giving birth, uh, but they often encounter their brothers and sisters as they grow up. And so in this research, they raised the chameleons either alone or in groups of four. And what they found was, as I said, there was the slower food attack times and duller colours when young isolated chameleons had contact with their siblings. Uh, They found that. But also, when young isolated chameleons had contact with their siblings, they actually ran away and uh, curled into balls. Uh, Comparing that with those reared in groups which interacted and exhibited their colours in a competitive display. So it's interesting to see that, uh, you know, this. Play fighting amongst the siblings might actually be useful. Uh, you know, young chameleons, like many reptiles, actually engage in intense combat with each other and uh, that seems to be uh, key, uh, a key part in the development of their behaviours um, that help them intimidate rivals and succeed in acquiring their food. Uh so that's a real contrast to older research that suggested that maybe reptiles' behavioural traits were, you know, highly stereotyped and fixed, um, so it was all in their DNA and uh, differed between species but not changing in, responses, in response to the conditions that they had during their lifetime. Uh, but this new evidence seems to suggest that maybe having brothers and sisters around is a good thing, even though mum disappears pretty quickly. Uh, so it's a huge implication for the, the raising of uh, reptiles in zoos and that sort of thing, because um, you know, when they're often raised in zoos uh, by private keepers or, or pet owners as well, uh, they assumed that uh, social cues um, that they get from other lizards are irrelevant to their development. But these results kind of call that into question and uh, make you wonder whether we should be changing that right there. There's some interesting research there from the University of Sydney, and uh, I suppose you know most people who grew up with brothers and sisters know that pretty well that that rough and tumble play, fighting, can certainly have a big effect on your development. Hopefully, in the positive. Hopefully, <laughs> and you're listening to ninety-eight point three FM two Double X Community Radio. The time is eleven fifty-two, and it's Broderick here presenting Fuzzy Logic for today. Your science on a Sunday. And I wanted to share a slightly concerning story that's coming out of James Cook University, uh, which uh, is talking about sharks and rays and the fact that they may be disappearing uh, quicker than we think. The latest IUCN red list of threatened species has a quarter of the world's sharks and rays on there uh, at the level of threatened with extinction, uh, with ray species found to be at a higher risk than sharks, which is really concerning. Um, The findings are actually part of the first ever global analysis of these species carried out by the shark specialist group at IUCN. And what they had a look at was of the... uh, the one thousand and forty one shark ray, uh, shark and ray species, and also from the closely related chimera species as well and they found that uh, that uh, looking at the the sharks and rays they found that they were at substantially higher risk than most other groups of animals uh, and had the lowest percentage of species considered safe with only twenty three percent categorized as least concern. Uh, So they found that the largest species of rays and sharks, especially those living in shallow water, are at the greatest peril. Overfishing is actually the main threat to the species, uh, with reported catches of sharks and rays peaking in 2003 and dominated by rays for the last 40 years. Actual catches that people are taking are likely to be hugely underreported uh, because of things like unintentionally caught sharks and rays, which account for much of the catch, um, which is a bycatch, which is the, the byproduct of what the fishermen are actually looking for. <laughs> but of course, developing markets overseas and depleting fishery targets have made this bycatch increasingly welcome. Uh, intentionally killing of sharks and rays due to the perceived risk that they pose to people Uh, fishing gear or target species is contributing to the threatened status of at least 12 species which i suppose is uh, really relevant at the moment with the drum lines happening off perth and i was quite uh, pleased to see the huge numbers of protests a couple weekends ago for these uh, drum lines because you know, we are swimming in the sharks' waters and when they're threatened like this, it's, uh, it's really disappointing to see that we're, we're taking them out and killing them. Um, you know, there's a, there's a huge issue out there and I don't think drum lines are the way to deal with it. And in fact, interestingly, none of the science supports that as well. Uh, so it's hard to see the reasoning behind uh, taking these sharks and rays and moving them out uh, and catching them and killing them uh, for that. So the, this research done by James Cook University uh, is showing that, you know, there's so many threatened species of sharks out there and we really need to start doing something about it. Uh, there's things like the global market uh, in shark fins used for shark fin soup, which is a major factor in the depletion of not only sharks, but also some rays with valuable fins, such as guitarfish. Uh, Sharks and rays are also sought for their meat uh, and other products from these include a Chinese tonic made from manta and devil ray gills or pharmaceuticals made from deep sea shark livers. Uh, The Indo-Pacific region, uh, especially the Gulf of Thailand and the Mediterranean Sea, are the two hot spots where depletion of sharks and rays is most dramatic. And uh, the Red Sea is home to a huge number of threatened sharks and rays, according to the expert. And part of the reason for the, the difficulty and... The difficulty in, in repleting these depleted uh, species is that sharks and rays tend to grow slowly and produce few young, which leaves them particular, particularly vulnerable to overfishing. And uh, so we need to take some steps in uh, policy. Um, you know, significant policy strides have been made over the last couple of decades, but there's a whole lot further that we need to go to take these sharks and rays out of the threatened state. Uh, which, you know, I find really disappointing because there's some amazing animals out there in the sea. And I was actually uh, snorkelling down at Marimbula on the weekend uh, over Australia Day and saw some beautiful rays down there that were just uh, they'd float on the bottom or swim through the sea. And it was amazing to watch. But I hate to think that they're disappearing Simply because of overfishing, which is something that can be legislated against and work towards stopping so we can stop the depletion of these species yes well let's move out of the ocean now and into something a little bit different and uh, let's look at some research from Australia again, this is coming from Flinders University down in Adelaide, and I actually posted on this the Facebook page about this uh, this research uh looking at emoticons now emoticons if we uh have a look they're the uh you know the colon dash right bracket smiley face or the colon dash left bracket sad face and i tried to write them on facebook uh but facebook being too clever for me actually changed them into actual faces rather than emoticons so that uh that took away the whole effect of the status that i posted on this but imagine the uh the pope punctuation style emoticons because that's what we're talking about today and interestingly they've been around since the 1980s uh the first smiley face emoticon appeared in a post to carnegie mellon university computer science general board uh, from professor scott e falman back in 1982 and uh, the thing i love about it is uh that uh the research for this uh from dr owen churches at flinders university came excuse me came about because <laughs> his interest was triggered by emails he was getting from his students which featured the smiley faces of the emoticons in there you know emo- emails along the lines of hey uh, professor churches can i have an extension of that assignment colon dash uh, right bracket uh, smiling you know trying to get that emotion in there and uh So this research was looking at it, and it came from the School of Psychology at Flinders, because, of course, emoticons are all about faces and uh, how we interpret them. And faces are really special from a psychological point of view. Uh, People uh, pay more attention to faces than they do to anything else, uh, which is part of the reason why we see faces everywhere. And, uh, you know, you might see the Jesus face in your burnt toast or... Uh, you know make faces out of the clouds and that sort of thing it's because our brains are wired to be seeing faces because they're such an important part of our social interaction Uh, and when we look at an image of a real face we look at things like the relative position of the mouth the nose and the eyes and it activates parts of our brains uh, which is really important and then we, when the image is inverted, we also get other patterns of brain activities as well. And are faces, but they're, of course, turned on their side. Uh, so what this research did uh, was they did uh, an electrophysiology study analysing people's brains and uh, determining the electro- electrical activity of the brain when they viewed different versions of faces. So what they did was they looked at real faces, smiley face emoticons involving the colon hyphen and right bracket, and also a meaningless string of characters, so just random punctuation. And uh, they looked at it the right way up, and then they looked at it when it was twisted on the side, like emoticons normally are. And what they found was, while face-specific brain activity was triggered by the images of real faces, both upright and inverted, uh, interestingly... They were only triggered by the emoticon when it was in the sideways orientation. And the most and another interesting part of it is that when the sequence was reversed, so rather than going colon, hyphen right bracket it went left bracket hyphen colon so the face is round the other way uh, the areas of the brain most readily involved in face perception weren't able to process the image of the face so it's all about that familiar configuration that's actually changing the brain and shaping how we interpret things which is really interesting um Because, you know, there's no innate neural response to emoticons that people are born with. We are born with facial recognition. It's all part of our hardwired DNA that's in there. But facial recognition of emoticons isn't in there. But now, because we're using it more and more, we're learning that that represents a face and uh, we're learning to interpret that through our brain, which is cool because it's an entirely culturally created neural response in so much as our culture has shaped our brain, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. So, you know, changing brain uh, all through the uh, internet and the use of emoticons is kind of amazing. Uh, and it's always amazing to think of just how plastic the brain is and, you know, that we can, our brain can be changed from so many different things that influence us and uh, one of those is emoticons, which they've shown does happen moving on to some other research from the monash university now um this was research looking at uh, sleep patterns in uh people and looking at comparing men and women and the interesting part of the study was it found that good sleep patterns can help men live longer but women will only benefit if they also have a diverse diet uh so this research uh was done by monash university's department of epidemiology and preventive medicine and uh, it was interesting to compare the men and women's uh, the role that sleep plays with men and women Uh, in the past poor sleep has been associated with increased morbidity and mortality uh, for some such things as obesity diabetes cardiovascular disease and heart disease as well uh, coronary heart disease and so we know that bad sleep is bad for you Uh, and this study found that for both genders uh, poor sleep was correlated with poor appetite and poor perceived health Uh, and that there was a, a significant interaction between the quality of sleep and the diversity of someone's diet And for men, uh, poor sleep didn't necessarily associate itself with a greater risk of death uh, unless there was also insufficient dietary diversity. But for women, good sleep only provided a survival advantage if they had a diverse diet. So I I think it's an interesting study here because it's kind of saying that, well, sleep is good, but you ought got to have a diverse diet as well, especially if you're a woman. Um... Women who were poor sleepers had a lower intake of vitamin B6 from food than those whose sleep was rated fair or good. And fair sleepers had a lower iron intake than good sleepers. So what we can see here is that there's a big change in the way that um, all those nutrients that we get from food are being taken up when we sleep. So for men, we've got to make sure we have a diverse diet, and, sl- and sleep's important too, but for women, that sleep is really important to go with that dietary diversity. Um so that's the interesting study coming out of there one more quick one before we go to some music is uh, a study coming out of the university of queensland which has been looking at the love drug and of course valentine's day coming up on friday the love drug's going to play a huge role in that and the love drug is oxytocin which is a a chemical that's produced in the brain and it enhances social interactions such as maternal behaviour, partnership and bonding. It's actually a chemical uh, that I call the the cuddle drug uh, because it's produced after a man and a woman have a very intimate time together and uh, helps them bond together and, and make that partnership together as the oxytocin floods the brain. It links that love and partnership and bonding and it's lovely. But this research in Queensland has actually found it's used can be used for something else, and that's for treating chronic abdominal pain. Um, so, so the University of Queensland Institute for Medical uh, Molecular Bioscience said the molecule that they had developed, which is kind of a, a different version of oxytocin with an improved stability, had a huge potential in alleviating abdominal pain, which is kind of interesting, I reckon, because often love gives you butterflies in the stomach and uh, to get rid of those painful butterflies you just need more oxytocin simple solution hey Hmm. not quite sure whether it's that simple (laughs) but let's take a little break and come back with more science in a moment experiment discover explore science do try this at home on fuzzy logic Hi, it's Broderick here, and I've got a really simple experiment for you. Today, we're going to find out how to make the most annoying sound in the world. Like, baby, 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 oh, baby, no, 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 I'm not baby. talking about Justin Bieber. I'm talking about a sound even more annoying than that. To do today's experiment, all you'll need are two empty soft drink cans. So hopefully you've got a few floating about. The first step is to take your soft drink can and hold it between your thumb and your middle finger so that they're kind of stretching with your thumb on the bottom of the can and your middle finger holding the top of the can. Then you need to do the same with the other can in your other hand. So you've got them both supported by the top and the bottom. Step two is to take the two cans and put them together in front of your mouth so that they're gently touching. Step three is to take a deep breath and blow a big, short, sharp breath between the cans and have a listen to what sound it makes. Oh, dear. I mm, don't like that sound. If you can't get it at first, keep practising. It really takes a short, sharp, strong breath between the cans to get them making that horrible, horrible noise. But the question is, why does blowing between the cans make a noise? Well, let's simplify it down first. Sound of any form is made by vibrations. That's something moving backwards and forwards. So when we blow between the cans, we must be making a vibration and we are. What happens is our short, sharp breath moves between the cans, and this is fast-moving air, and fast-moving air creates an area of low pressure, which means the cans collide together, and when they collide, they bounce off each other a little bit, and then the fast-moving air goes through again, creating an area of low pressure, which means the cans collide and bounce off each other. And it just keeps going and going like that. And those vibrations through the cans make that horrible, horrible sound. So use this sound well. Use this weapon wisely. Because with great power comes great responsibility. That's all we've got today on Fuzzy Logics. Do try this at home. Make sure you give it a go at home. And if you do, post it on the Fuzzy Logic Facebook page. We'd love to see your experiments. Catch you next time. The time is 12.13, you're tuned in to XFM Community Radio, Broderick here presenting Fuzzy Logic for this Sunday, and of course we're talking science, that's what Fuzzy Logic's all about, is science. If you want to ask us a question, then we do answer science questions every Sunday in the Canberra Times, we've got our column, Ask Fuzzy. If you want to ask us a question, just send us an email to askfuzzy at zoho.com. If you want to make a request for the show or ask any questions while we're on air, why not head to our Facebook page? Just type in Fuzzy Logic into the Facebook search bar and we're the one with the lovely Autumn Leaf logo. So find us there and uh, let us know what you think or what you reckon you'd like to hear about. We'll always look forward to hearing from our listeners. But let's get back to the science news now uh, because... I've got some more research, and we we're talking about Valentine's Day before and the love drug, and uh, you know, love drug, and we're looking at love and Valentine's Day and attractive people. And I'm making a very tenuous segue here, but attractive people, according to a new new research out of the University of Zurich, are better performing in endurance. And in fact, the more attractive you are, the better you're going to do in the Tour de France. Yeah, I know it sounds like a stretch, but this is new research that reveals that the top 10% of finishers in the 2012 Tour de France were, on average, 25% more attractive. So, good-looking guys finish first, quite literally. What they the researchers did was... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, they they looked at a study randomly selecting 80 of the 153 riders that were in the 2012 Tour de France, which was the one won by Englishman Bradley Wiggins, Uh, and they created an online survey of of this in which participants had to rate the rider on a scale of 1 to 5 in terms of how attractive they thought they were participants were also asked if they knew the rider and if the answer was yes then their ranking was excluded so of course if they knew the rider then they might know how well they performed so this is taking that condition out of it uh, so they didn't have a knowledge of actually how well they were to affect their attractiveness and what they found was uh, on average the most attractive riders finished uh, 31st out of 80 while the least attractive riders finished on average 60 out of 80 So it showed that, you know, the attractive rankings, even among a relatively homogenous group of males, all Caucasian, between the age of 20 and 30 years, well trained, not overweight, they found that some faces are consistently found to be more attractive than others.' Now, in the past, previous studies looking at male attractiveness in humans had focused on masculinity, with the idea being that more masculine males are more attractive and have higher testosterone levels and are therefore stronger. Uh, Interestingly, there was a study done at the ANU last year which looked at the attractiveness of males as penis length increased. And what they found was the longer your penis, the more attractive you were, which is an interesting study. They also found, though, that the taller you were, the more attractive you were considered by females too. So an interesting study there. But this study uh, shows that maybe... attractiveness uh, can link to the endurance side of things as well because of course the tour de france is a huge long bike race which ha- requires high endurance performance and so it kind of shows that maybe in our evolutionary past this high endurance performance may have been beneficial you know it, it would have affected how long you can work on your land and even nowadays it's probably associated with a more healthy lifestyle resulting in fewer cardiovascular problems so this, uh, this healthiness which comes through in the attractiveness uh, helps show that strong uh, ranking by females in terms of attractiveness, which is really, really interesting. Um, the other side of the study also looked at the males who participated and this showed strong correlation to the female rankings which means that men are very well able to judge the attractiveness of other men and it's probably a factor that's quite important to allow men to spot potential competitors so if that guy's looking at a girl across the room you can work out whether he's a six or a ten and whether you're in trouble or not Speaking of attractiveness, let's move on to blue eyes and blonde hair and fair skin that, uh, you know, the Aryan type look. And uh, what we're actually looking at is where blue eyes came from. Because we generally associate blue eyes, blonde hair, and fair skin all together and uh, that sort of thing. But some new research uh, from a team of researchers uh, at the University of Queensland's Institute for Molecular Bioscience found that. Uh, Blue eyes may have actually originated when humans had dark skin, back in the Mesolithic area, which is about 7,000 years ago. Uh, what the researchers have done is uh, they've analysed a 7,000 year old human skeleton which was found in Spain. And it's really cool because even though these populations died out ages ago, we can still use uh, their genes to give us clues about what they looked like and how they lived. And so, looking at the genes in this Mesolithic man, they found that it was likely to result in dark skin and dark hair, but blue eyes. And it's interesting, because this gene combination no longer exists in uh, contemporary Europeans, because this was looking at a European man, um, which suggests that the spread of genes associated with a light eye colour probably occurred before the spread of genes for light skin. The other interesting things they found uh, using this gene study was that the Mesolithic hunter-gatherer carried the gene for lactose intolerance, uh, which is consistent with an inability to digest dairy products. So that's something that we've developed over the last 7,000 years as we've gotten used to farming and drinking cow's milk and that side of things. And also... The genes that uh, are associated with uh, your saliva indicate a low starch diet. Um, And this contrasts to genomes from the Neolithic farmers who could process high levels of lactose in milk and also process the starch in grains. So that's showing the difference in diet there between the hunter-gatherers and the farmers. Uh, But the genes for immunity to diseases were similar between both the hunter-gatherers and the farmers, which means that when uh, humans transitioned to agriculture in European populations, it did cause a change in their diet, but not a change in their immunity, which is a really interesting study there. And I hope you're uh, feeling the heat out if you're outside at the moment. It is pretty hot. In fact, it's already up to 33 degrees today. I think it's supposed to reach 38. And uh, this hot weather, you know, it's not something we're really used to in Canberra. Hey, it's normally freezing cold. And uh, when the Canberra winter comes, we are going to be shivering again. But interestingly, that might not be such a bad thing. In fact, some new research uh, from the University of Queensland, again, they're featuring highly today, found that shivering against the cold may have the added benefit of burning body fat. So to, to to start off with here, I should clarify that there's two types of fat in the body, white fat and brown fat. And white fat uh, primarily stores excess calories in the body, while brown fat is the, the fat that the body burns uh, when activated. Uh, so, you know, when we're exercising when we're moving, doing that sort of thing. And what this study has found is uh, that uh, when we are shivering, um, the... Uh, hormones, Uh, oricin uh, and uh, some other hormones were released uh, from the shivering muscle and from uh, activated brown fat. Uh, And so they they then treated human white fat cells with the same two hormones and observed that these white fat cells then took on the characteristics of heat producing and energy burning brown fat cells. So possibly the shivering is a good thing because it helps convert this fat so we can burn it away. And uh, it was an interesting study that was done because to do it, they basically exposed healthy volunteers to cold temperatures until they shivered and then collected blood samples during this time to measure the different hormones. So it's really interesting. Uh, previous studies had actually shown that people who are lean tend to have more brown fat than people who are overweight. And that makes sense. You know, people who are lean have less of that stored fat, whereas overweight people have that stored fat, which makes it harder to burn away. Further research uh, is hoping to establish whether these two hormones that are produced when we start shivering might be targeted to help the body produce more brown fat, which may help benefit our metabolism and weight control as well, which would be a really good thing to help uh, make burning fat happen much more easily and hopefully it would increase the effect that exercise and activity might have on burning fat away. So some really interesting human-based research coming out there, which I always think is the most interesting. You know, what actually goes on with our bodies, what goes on with ourselves, and, uh, you know, what's actually happening. Now, of course, this is your dose of science on a Sunday. It's an hour. It's the best we can do for you. It's I hope you find that we pack as much science in as we can. But if you want more science during the week, then there are plenty of places to get it around Canberra. There's a few things happening this week. If you head down to CSIRO Discovery Centre, they're currently running an exhibition which is called Capturing the Cosmos. And... What they've done is it's the uh, Artists' Society of Canberra who've worked with the scientists and images of the CSIRO to produce astronomical images. Uh, So the inspiration has come from images of our galaxy and beyond using radio telescope images on the computer screen or computer-enhanced images from telescopes launched into orbit. Uh, The artists have interpreted that and worked with the scientists to extend thoughts of space and, and what we might see and, and look at it in an, in an art sort of way and it's a really interesting exhibition up there and it's completely free and all artworks are for sales uh, so head up o- for sales for sale there's only one sale uh, but, but if you head on up to the discovery center it's open all this week uh from nine to five uh, as usual when the discovery center itself is open just head on in and check it out and uh, i think it's a really interesting exhibition to see what you can see there Also on this week, there's a talk happening at the ANU, which looks at uh, perspectives on print media and climate change in Australia. This is presented by uh, a researcher from the Fenner School at the Australian National University, uh, and uh, Desley is – Desley Rogers – is presenting her research looking at the frequency and distribution of print media coverage on climate change within Australia and how Australian opinion elites perceive the media influence on climate policy and the role that the media might actually play influencing public opinion on climate change climate change is one of those issues that really has uh divided the public and the scientists and the media has certainly played a huge role in that whether positive or negative it's not so clear but if you head along to the talk on uh, this thursday you can find out more uh of desley's research and also she's talking about some of the interviews that she's done with the ipcc the international panel of climate change and looks at other key reports and the impact that the coverage of those had Uh, so that's happening in the fenner seminar room in the frank fenner building at the australian national university this thursday the 13th of february from 1 to 2 p.m for more details you can head to billboard.anu.edu.au Also this week, of course, on Friday, it's the 14th of February, it's Valentine's Day. And if you haven't found the perfect date for your Valentine yet, well, do I have a date for you. Head to Questacon, because from 9 to 5 p.m. during the day, up in Questacon's QLab, they'll be dissecting hearts. So you can see what's inside a heart. You know, is it just filled with love? Or are there things like blood and vessels and those sorts of things in there? You can... See the difference between the atria and the ventricles of the heart as you cut them open inside the Q-Lab uh, at Questacon. You do need to pay for entry at Questacon to get up to the Q-Lab, but it sounds like it would be well worth it to go and check out these heart dissections. Well, that just about wraps it up for today here on Fuzzy Logic. If you do want to listen again, of course, you can download our podcast. Just type Fuzzy Logic into iTunes or head to Fuzzy Logic on 2 uh, <laughs> the. The uh, com. that's the address there. My name's Broderick, thanks for joining me this Sunday. I hope you'll join us again next week for Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.